You're listening to the official Dietitian Connection podcast. This podcast gives you access to the most successful and influential experts in the dietetic profession. This podcast will inspire you, it will challenge you, and it will empower you to become a nutrition leader and realize your dreams. Welcome to today's Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the founder of Dietitian Connection. And it's my pleasure today to have Professor Liz Isingring with us. Liz and I are well known to each other. We've worked together for more than 20 years when we first worked together at the Wesley Hospital in Brisbane, Australia. And our paths have stayed connected ever since, which I'm so happy about. Um, And more recently, we were able to work together at the Princess Alexandra Hospital, where Liz actually headed the oncology research program. Liz is currently the Professor of Nutrition and Dietetics at Bond University, and last year she took a bit of a sea change and started her own business, Link Nutrition. Much of Liz's career has focused on research in the areas of oncology, nutrition, nutrition in older adults, and our joint passion is malnutrition screening and assessment. Liz has been innovative over her career in academic and research arena, and today much of our conversation will focus on innovation in nutrition. I'd like to thank Flavor Creations for supporting today's podcast episode and a huge welcome to you, Liz. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Marie, and I'm really happy and excited to be here. So firstly, can you tell us about your current role as professor at Bond University and maybe some of your current research interests or projects? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I have been at Bond University for a bit over six years now. I um, came to start the new Master of Nutrition and Dietetics Practice Program, um, which I'm happy to say uh, has gone on to get full accreditation and, um, you know, all our graduates are getting jobs, which I'm very happy and satisfied about. So, that's in a, a really good position now. So, I think Um, you know, I was ready for some more changes. So I've stepped back from some more of those management type roles like head of program and focusing more on what I see as leadership roles in terms of leading the research area. So it means I get to go back to those aspects that I really love, which is research and teaching. So the main areas I would say at the moment of my research is still oncology research. So we are almost finished a Cancer Council Queensland funded program, which is looking at ginger to see if that will help improve nausea and vomiting in patients receiving highly metagenic uh, chemotherapy. And um, so I'm excited about that because we you know, actually got some decent funding to do it in a in a large way. And I guess that's a common question that we often get from patients and nurses is, you know, we hear that ginger might be useful, um, but how much ginger should we be having and, and, you know, is it going to make a difference? So that's one of the big ones. Um, I also have an interest in older adults. So we've been doing a range of different projects looking to see how we can improve the food and dining experience um, in people living in, in nursing homes. And because I lead the research team, I then get to support staff and research students in their areas. So I actually have a very broad and very mixed uh, research portfolio, you could say. But other big areas are in bariatric surgery, and that's obviously uh, an expanding uh, area. So um, that's sort of I've definitely been involved in a few large projects in that area. And uh, otherwise, it's mainly supporting students in the area of sort of hospital and clinical type work. So I guess we could sort of bring all my uh, research together. It's probably nutrition, 
clinical nutrition and nutrition support. Awesome. And you, you just decided to take a bit of a, as I call it, a sea change yeah. last year, starting <laughs> yeah. your own business, Link Nutrition. Yeah. So can you yeah. tell us a little bit about what led you to do that and a little bit more about the work that you're doing there? Yeah, absolutely. So I very interesting how that all came about. And I sort of feel for me, it's kind of like a full circle moment because when I started as a clinical dietitian and I did a little bit of private practice as well, I enjoyed it. And I I feel at heart I am a clinical dietitian, but I soon sort of realized for me that I felt there was only so much I could do one-on-one, and I guess that's why I sort of started down the research pathway because I felt I could have a greater impact uh, through my papers and guidelines than I could just on one, one-on-one. However, after a bit over 20 years of that, I sort of was missing the one-on-one impact, I think. Um, so that combined with the fact that I actually had uh, two close friends diagnosed with cancer. So although, you know, I'm recognised as an oncology nutrition expert, actually seeing the cancer journey through their eyes um, and with that lens gave me a very different picture. And so I saw what we're doing well and from what I can see, the inpatient or uh, even day unit care um, for chemotherapy, um, is actually managed really quite well. But there is just this huge disconnect. Uh, and as one of my friends described, it's almost like you're spat out of the system at the end. And um, so that, I guess, really motivated me to because, you know, they were asking me what should they be doing. And I was doing as best I can, but I was, you know, working full time. And, and I couldn't find a package or anything that I thought would be ideal. Um, And the challenge we have is while we've got uh, many excellent private practitioners, um, because they have to deal with so many cases, they're often to have the level of speciality you need in some of those really complex, you know, head and neck cases or parenteral nutrition, you know, they don't often have, uh, see enough patients in that area to have that level of expertise. Um, So that sort of helped motivate that combined with the fact that I was missing on the one-on-one motivated me to start Link Nutrition, which stands for Liz Isingring Nutrition Consulting or Coaching, depending how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, the idea really is to form a link between the, the excellent hospital care and the community care. And so it's not about replicating services, but it's helping to link them up and provide that service. So I do a mixture. I, I do have some basis, so I do some in-person work, but mostly it's actually either over the phone or like what we're doing now via Skype and providing um, uh, worksheets, tutorials, check-ins, videos. And it's it's that it's what I wish I had had to recommend to my friends when they went through it. And it would be similar if, you know, any other family or friends you know, unfortunate to have a diagnosis. It's the sort of information that I would um, mm. recommend to them as well. So, yes, a change of pace. But for me, the, the mission's pretty much the same, which is about using my expertise and experience to help others. So I'm just doing it in a little bit of a different way. Mm. And there's really such a need there. There's such a gap. You're right. There's not, no one working in that space. So. No, exactly. Yeah. And it's not I re- like I thought, you know, I, I, you know, this is my field. I know it. But there's nothing like, you know, obviously I wasn't walking in their shoes, but but looking with their lens mm. and you just see it, you know, you see the good bits, but then you just see all these gaps and and the, the lack of coordination and communication. And everyone's obviously doing the best they can, um, but, the, yeah, it, it's just a huge gap. And so <laughs> um, 
I think we need a lot more people, but you know, someone's got to start it. So um, yes, I'm I'm doing my my bit at the moment, and we'll see how we we move over time. But yeah, mm. to me, it's a huge gap. You talked about seeing it through their your friends' shoes and their lens yeah. and their perspective. So what yeah. were some of the the things that we're doing well? Do you think? And then what are some things you, you talked about communication and yeah, uh, what things so, do you think we need to be, to be better? Yeah, absolutely. And and so these are definitely coming from my friends, but also I guess from from clients as well. That the same themes seem to keep coming up. So what we're doing well, I think the. Um, coordinate. So, for example, if someone's having uh, surgery and then radiation therapy or chemotherapy, once they're actually in and in that setting, um, you know, most of the time people speak so highly of the doctors, oncologists, nurses, and allied health in that in that setting. So, once you're actually in, um, then that seems to be quite quite good. I think even from the beginning and around diagnosis, though, it can be very challenging. Um, you know, people talk about uh, that that shell shock of diagnosis where they actually can't hear anything, um, as in taking the information. And so just being bombarded with verbal information from the oncologist is actually not that helpful. So ha- definitely taking a, a friend or a carer with them and actually getting written information, um, I think is useful. Also having um, an advocate or someone helping them go in and knowing what questions to ask, because when they've sort of got that that mental blank, they don't even know what they should be asking until later. And then trying to get in touch with very busy specialists um, is very challenging. So I think that that beginning bit is a little bit difficult. Once they're actually in getting treatment, that seems to be what we're doing well. But then what we're not doing well uh, is afterwards the um, the follow-up care. And um, yes, that, that, that description of just being spat out of the system. And so, you know, for some of these treatments, they're going in, you know, four or five days a week for five or six weeks. So it's incredibly intensive time. And then it's kind of like nothing. And then they're sort of left scrambling to try and get their life back together. And but wanting to do the best. And often it's combined with a time of being highly motivated to change their lifestyle, but tired because of whatever treatment they've just gone through. And then utter confusion. And so even, you know, with my um, friends who, you know, they've all got degrees and they're all highly intelligent, um, but they're just bombarded with so much information, particularly by well-meaning friends who do all these web searches. And of course, a lot of it, they don't realize, but a lot of it is is selling products or, you know, multi-level marketing. So it's very confusing trying to navigate that and know, um, know what they should be doing. So, what I think we're doing well is when you're actually in and getting the treatment, whether it be radiation or chemotherapy, I think that's managed quite well. I think afterwards the, the gap's ridiculous. Um, and I also think the miscommunication. So I've heard so many stories of being asked to come in for, for MIs and whatever when um, – uh, you know, for different scans when they've already had them or mm. the communication between the oncologist and the surgeon not not working and, and being asked to do all these repeat tests. So um, I think, yes, the, the systems and, of course, even from what I can see in the hospital, you know, the chemotherapy, they, they like their system, which is different, again, to the, what the radiation uses. So mm. just having all these different systems that don't actually talk to one another, yeah. um, I think, is very difficult as well. Yeah, so that the sort of the electronic medical record that everyone can access, which I know yeah. the government's trying to set up, to, really, yeah. isn't, really isn't operating at the moment. Not to what mm. we would like it to be. I, yes, I think that absolutely is, is um, it's not where it needs to be. Mm. And at a, a higher level, mm-hmm. in terms of the medical industry, you know, there's 
so many challenges that they have to face, um, mm. current and new and involving, um, both in cancer treatment and outside, you know, in, in wider medical services. Mm. How do you think they're adapting to some of these challenges? I, for most of the specialists and people working in this area that I speak to, you know, they're incredibly passionate, uh, motivated professionals who are constantly trying to upskill. Um, and so they're trying to do the best they can in a, val- a very challenging system. And I would argue they're, they're often overloaded as well. So it, it's very hard to do a good job um, within those constraints and when you're under so much pressure. Um, I think... And I actually think it's, it's unrealistic to expect one specialist to be on top of all these different issues. So to me at the moment, unless someone can come up with some other amazing innovations, which I'm always open for, but at the moment I think our best bet is probably working really effectively as a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary team and knowing it's sort of like having the brains trust within that team and knowing who to go to for different information. So I'll give you an example. So you know, a lot of the the people I see, you know, they've had this big shock of a cancer diagnosis. They want to do everything they can. Um, you know, they yes, they're going to go down the chemotherapy route, but they want to support themselves. And if they can do it with supplements or herbs or whatever, they want to know what the information is and what they should be doing. So they then go to the oncologist. Um, some oncologists are more on top of it than others, but you know, that's a whole field in itself. So in able to get accurate information uh, can be very challenging. And then if they feel that their specialist isn't on top of the information in terms of being able to give clear-cut updates on where the evidence is and where the concerns are, then we run into that challenge where they have trust in the oncologist for the, the chemotherapy but not for the other areas. And so sometimes they're not actually even discussing or disclosing the other things you know, herbs and supplements and things that they might be taking, which in some cases actually can be a problem because it can decrease the effectiveness. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So I think we need to be aware and open with where expertise is and where perhaps it it isn't just because it's, I don't think, humanly possible to be on top of so many things. So you, you need to work with your team and have your brains trust where you can say, okay, you know, have a chat to the pharmacist, have a chat to the dietitian, et cetera. Um, so that's what I I think at, at the moment, and I I know some areas that I think are doing it really well, and I know some areas that say they have a multidisciplinary team, but it's not really. You know, they're not they're not a true team, and they're not truly um, communicating as well as they should be. Mm. So turning specifically to nutrition, I would say in the last two decades, when you and I were in the the heat of well, the depths of malnutrition screening that we haven't yeah. really come very far in those <laughs> two decades. So what do you think are some of the barriers to innovation, particularly in nutrition? Oh, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, yes, and I know exactly what you're saying, Marie, in terms of, um, you know, how far have we come from the nutrition screening and assessment. And uh, I don't know, I think it sort of goes in ways. I, I get are sort of heartened within the first sort of eight to ten years and then you see some of those similar issues keep coming up and re- repeating so it's almost like going through cycles um, so at the broad level I think some of the challenges and this is specifically in nutrition and dietetics because we're based on a science and we're evidence-based there's that challenge between when is enough evidence enough to 
to change practice. And I do think that um, we have to remember that dietetics is an art and science. And so, yes, having the evidence and the science is really important, but we also have to be uh, creative and use our experience to implement things most effectively. Because if we, you know, and this now I'm putting my guideline hat on, if we're always going to wait for grade A or grade B evidence, um, then unfortunately in nutrition, just because of all the sorts of challenges we have with running nutrition trials, um, you know, for example, you can't. Uh, ethically, you know, randomise one group to have nutrition support and one group not to if they're all malnourished, you know, those Uh sorts of things, the the challenges with blinding. We're actually never going to get really Uh strong evidence in a lot of areas. And I think we need to be aware of that and, and say, though, but considering all these limitations, the fact that we do have this evidence, it might not be grey evidence, Sorry, it might not be grade A evidence, but it's grade C or B, which in this area, considering all the challenges, is actually the best we're going to get. Therefore, it's good evidence and we need to do something with it. So I, I do think there's a little bit about that, knowing it ourselves as a discipline, but also being able to um, discuss and explain that to the medical disciplines because, you know, a lot of this stuff is all about randomised controlled trials, which we just can't do in some cases. So I think that's the first thing, understanding um Understanding the evidence, limitations, and the fact that in some areas we're actually never going to get stronger evidence. So I think that's one thing. The second thing is, I look, I, I'm really heartened to see um, some sort of fresh blood and lots of innovation and stuff happening more recently. But I do think it's a discipline we do tend to be a little bit conservative, um, old-fashioned. That That's my personal view. I have no empirical evidence to mm-hmm. <laughs> say otherwise. Um but what that does mean is that uh, sometimes we're resistant to change and innovation. And so that whole sort of 10, 15-year cycle of actually implementing new innovation uh, can take time. And then I think there's just the the logistical one that, you know, everyone is so busy uh, in in the work that they may not be including thinking time or strategic time to actually taking a look to see um, – how they can perhaps do things more effectively. And the problem is the busy, when you're very busy and seeing lots of patients, they will always take up whatever time you have. And in fact, more as well, um, as I'm sure the clinicians can agree with me. So actually carving out some time. So so for example, if we take screening uh, or even investing in research as an example, like that immediately in the short term may not seem like a good investment because it's, it's going to be new systems, it's going to cost money, it's going to be harder. But in the longer term, um, you know, we, we're creating a triage system, we are being able to get the evidence to prioritise our services. So, you know, in terms of long term, it's, it's a great investment. But I think we are under so much pressure, both financial and in terms of the number of patients we need to see, that sometimes we just can't get out of our own way to, to be a bit more strategic about it. So based on those barriers of being evidence-based and perhaps our culture and then the um, the resourcing, um, mm-hmm. staff and finance and time, mm. like to create some really, I don't think we've had any really big breakthroughs in innovation and nutrition what do you think we need to do to make that happen, apart from what you've just talked about? Mm. How do we go about it? <laughs> um, I think the first thing is at least to discuss our challenges and and whether it's publishing 
um, discussing, publishing, getting it out there because a lot of these challenges that, that we think we're facing, we find out other people are facing as well. And they might actually have found a, uh, an innovation or a unique way of going about it. Um, so I think we need to be, and I think we're getting better, and actually we're getting better between states, but I think we need to be bit much better at working sort of as a network and as a discipline as opposed to little individual pockets. Mm. Um, so because to be honest, these are really complex issues, and unless we do work together on a broader scale, they're going to be very difficult um, to achieve, I think. So I think that's one. Um, I think the second one is working with other disciplines. Often it's the the specialist or the medical staff that can either uh, perhaps have a little bit more access to funding or uh, staffing or getting other changes through. So I have seen, for example, several situations where dietetics putting business cases forward for extra staff has not been successful. Yet when they've worked with oncology or surgery or other areas uh, in renal, um, then they're able to, in, because the those disciplines can see the value of it, uh, of the nutrition support added to their team, and that that's been a, an effective way to increase staffing and then improve services. So I think it's, it's collaboration, it's communication, and it's looking for other areas that are doing it better. And and so once again, if I, I pick some areas like oncology and renal where they've got big databases and they're working together better in terms of collaborating with um, with different dis uh, with colleagues and research and clinical and sharing big databases, then they've got, you know, anytime they're, they're questioned or they need to put in a big grant application, you know, they've got uh, thousands of um, patients' data at their fingertips that they can use. Whereas I think when we're trying to do things and we might be putting in an application, for example, at a hospital, you know, we're lucky sometimes if we have access to 50 data on 50 or 60 people, um, you know, which is not going to cut it. So I, I think collaboration, communication and looking to those areas that do seem to be uh, doing it doing it better. And I know there have actually been some great examples of innovation in nutrition and dietetics. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So can, absolutely. Can you maybe share a couple of those examples for us? Yeah. So there's a, there's a couple that I want to mention. Uh, one, I think, is just around the digital you know, some of the, the screening and triage systems, but actually putting it into a, a digital format that needs to be completed uh, by the staff before, um, you know, things can, can move on. And I've seen that work really effectively in both a hospital setting and nursing home setting. So I think that's great. It's made a difference and um, staff, the whole staff are all on board. Um, from a product point of view, I absolutely want to point out the you know the, the, the one of the holy grails and what I know as a dietitian we were talking about for ages is you know wouldn't it be great if we could have ice cream or a product that people actually like but you know have dysphagia and, and so it's not suitable and so for example flavor creations coming out with their ice cream product which is fortified but also um suitable for those with dysphagia because it's stable with a frozen or thawed. I mean, to me, that's a remarkable innovation and it's it answers that question that so many of us, me included, 
had about I, I wish we could have. And I think anytime we're sort of asking that, oh, I wish we had, or I wish it would be different, you know, those sorts of things are identifying the common problems. And so we should be looking at how we can um, can work on those. So to yeah. me, I think that's an amazing yeah. product. And, and that was really um, genius at the time. And you basically hit the nail on the head there in terms of meeting an un- unmet need because we yeah. shared it on Facebook and it's probably, it remains our number one post in terms Isn't of that interesting? what was wow. shared. People just yeah. love loved it it went off yeah, because it, yeah. it was a really a need that needed to be filled yeah. absolutely mm. and that people had been talking about and, and particularly important i guess coming from patients and clients like they um you know they they were asking for it and then as clinicians we we knew and we wished mm-hmm. and i can remember all sorts of you know trying to do all sorts of silly things with um you know different homemade versions to and you know uh doing it at a certain temperature and um you know, <laughs> sort of risky stuff that I'm sure the speech pathologist would not be happy with mm. um, to try and get a suitable product, but we couldn't get it. So, you know, having um, having that flavour creation stabilised cream, I think, is amazing and it has absolutely ticked that that box. So, mm. yeah, so absolutely I think that's, that's a breakthrough uh, in terms of products. I think, and, and to me, that that's a, I mean, that's a pretty major innovation because it's, it's answered that question. Um, to me, we can have, uh, it's still innovation, it, it may not be as huge, but different um, looking at things a different way or basically listening to what patients and clients want in terms of different flavours of products as well. So to me, I think that works instead of just having the old vanilla chocolate um, strawberry and, you know, and, and patients are saying, you know, oh, I wish I really want coffee or lemon and lime or a fruit brace and whatever. So actually listening to that and creating uh, suitable nutrition products in that line um, I think is great as well. And then in the um, sort of your other passion is sort of older nutrition. Yeah. Um, I think the dysphagia cup was probably yeah. deserves yeah. a mention as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I agree. And that's certainly both, particularly in aged care. And I guess that, that's the main one. I also um, do see it used um, in, in both stroke, in patient setting, in, in stroke and, um, you know, head and neck cancer. So yes, it absolutely has its, its use there. But yeah, in aged care. And so that that's particularly been a, a passion of mine, probably, it's probably coming up to, to 10 years now uh, and certainly having the opportunity to work with people like Maggie Beer and you know some of the amazing chefs and, and Shri Hugo who's doing amazing work with the Lantern Project and yes we we would always see that challenge of um, the residents wanting to have the dignity to actually drink themselves and be able to feed themselves so to be able to do that by innovative product like the dysphagia cup um, absolutely is a tremendous innovation because otherwise and I can remember that and I I, it sticks in my mind this this lovely uh, gentleman that I I, um, used to support and he would just talk about basically the lack of dignity um, when he, he wouldn't be able to, you know, he'd, he'd need the the um, the carers to come around and, and serve him and whatever um, and then when he actually accessed the, the dysphagia cup and could try the cup, um, yeah, it, for him, it, the improvement in terms of quality of life because he felt, you know, he was he was doing it all himself again and he absolutely loved that. So to me, yes, it's an innovation uh, but it's an innovation that's directly improving quality of life and nutrition, of course, um, which is important. But in, in that moment, seeing seeing the the happiness and the confidence, I think sometimes sort of overrides the nutrition aspect of it. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And that that's a sort of a physical product that's um that's had a tremendous impact as well. 
So yeah, I have to have to say um, that that's one of the the reasons that um, you know I really love utilizing uh, some of the flavor creation products is because yes, they absolutely have broken the ground on quite a few areas. So very exciting, and listening to the the clients and the patients, which I think is really important as well. And for those who aren't familiar with the um, Dysphagia Cup, which Flavor Creations has won awards for, can you just talk about some of the features? Briefly. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I f- so I went to the the launch of the the cup. I think a couple of years ago, and I think the fact that it's all it's it's easy to use. So, especially a lot of work and research went in with actual patients to make sure that it's easy to handle, easy to open, and so that they can actually um, you know drink um, themselves uh, in a safe and effective way, and as opposed to like I said in the past, having carers, et cetera, that um, might need to, to have helped open and actually, um, you know, feed. feed. So what areas do you think we still need to tackle or innovate in the upcoming decade in terms of nutrition? Okay. So I guess what's most alive for me at the moment is because I am now trying to help this this link after hospital care, but I see it as a huge challenge, particularly with our ageing population and limited resources within the hospital setting. So absolutely, I think we need to do a lot more in the home and the community. And that shouldn't be a sub-service or a decreased service. Like it needs to just be as effective, but done in in an innovative, uh, creative way. So for me, it's having access to those products that work, having experts access to the services and so whether that's in little community hubs utilizing online systems more effectively using uh home in the home care um and it i mean this is a really complex issue so it may be a combination of these things but to me i think that's that's all where it's at i definitely you know with the baby boomers my my parents would be class classified in that and you know they're they're aging they're still luckily very healthy but I know their wish is to age at home for as long as they can so it's about I think people keeping people healthy in the home but also those that do have chronic conditions and need to be managed how can we better manage that at the community level rather than I think the over-reliance on the hospital, which is, you know, under so much strain and it will not be able to manage. So we are going to have to look at doing things um, very differently, I think. And like I said, I'm still not entirely sure whether it will be like little hubs or bases around GP settings or utilising more um, uh, online stuff. Maybe, who knows, maybe it might be Uber stuff, but, you know, allied health or medical Uber style, uh, you know, you have a little menu and you, you order what you want at that time. Not sure, but I think it's a huge scope for innovation because it, there's many, many challenges already and many, many challenges looming in that space. And finally, if there was one specific area that you think the medical nutrition industry could tackle in terms of innovation, particularly around developing a new product, do you have any thoughts mm. on what that might look like? Hmm. Good one. 
so why why I'm hesitating is I I can just see there's still a lot I think so I can't think of absolutely one brilliant one I think there's still a lot but I think it's about talking to the clinicians and talking to the patients to to come up um, with what's you know really valuable for them so I know um, you know some areas have looked at different different flavors like lemon and lime or um, even some savory products but I think it's it's looking outside of the strawberry chocolate vanilla, looking at different flavours, different consistencies and different ways of um, do it, doing some of the products to actually get the, the nutrition in. So um, if it can be done in an enjoyable way uh, and in perhaps in a concentrated way, um, then I think that that's it as well. Um, so to me, I still think it, it's not like there's, you know, just, just one product. I still think there's room uh, for quite a few different in innovations around that, around uh, flavours, consistency and concentration. And actually, um, just adding to that, it, it's just come to mind, um, I'm very excited we're doing an international workshop um, with disciplines that have never collaborated before. So it's actually uh, geriatric oncology dentists and then uh, my area of nutrition and dietetics and we're all coming together to see how we can improve the oral health nutritional and functional status of our older patients with cancer because they really have a range of challenges you know both um, from a nutrition point of view the uh, oral health and and uh, uh, teeth point of view and then the swallowing challenges and so this is where a lot of those products that we were speaking about whether it be um, you know dysphagia cup or the the ice cream that's stable at all temperatures or some of those unique flavors because some of the challenges um, are very complex and no one discipline is doing it well. So, yeah, I, I'm excited. that This is actually being called sort of an innovative workshop and it's the first time uh, in, in our international uh, history of the organisation that we've actually had um, these three, and actually I need to add speech pathology, so four uh, disciplines working together on this very unique aspect. So I hope, I, I would love to have a chat to you afterwards to see if we get any, uh, you know, brainstorms and, and ideas after that sort of workshop. But I think, yes, those complex issues and working with different disciplines to try and come up with unique ideas and listening to the patients and clients themselves about what they really want. I think that's really important, really focusing on what the patients want yeah. and making it patient-focused. Yeah. Yep. Um, and also, if we can have some dietitians working in the actual nutrition and food industry, I think that would be amazing Ooh, to actually big. lead some of these projects. Yeah, I completely agree, completely agree. And that that's one thing I wanted to mention also about uh, Flavor Creations, which I love, is the fact that they work very closely and employ dietitians and researchers and research scientists and actually have very good links with all the, the uh, universities and research as well, which I love. And, yes, I strongly encourage um, absolutely the, the food industry Food industry and even research—it's it, still amazing to me that the number of uh, research, uh, sorry, the number of um, uh, so, for example, sur surgery where they do nutrition type studies, but actually don't have a dietitian involved. And so, of course, you don't know what you don't know. So some of the the results and questions actually aren't 
great. And then I'm asked to review these things. And of course, I've got to point out all the, the errors. Whereas if they had just included a dietitian at the very beginning, we could have avoided a lot of the, this waste, waste of um, research time and money. So yes, I absolutely strongly support and advocate for the inclusion of um, dietitians in all aspects of research and uh, food industry work. So we look forward and encourage some young budding dietitians to to tackle some of these and come th- come you know forward with some ideas on innovation and nutrition in the future. Look. Absolutely, and I have great hope because even I can see through you know with our master graduates now that they've been brought up with the the social media and the devices, so they're all over that. Um, they do tend to think a little bit differently and creatively. So I I have great hope that um, and already actually. Um, you know, like uh, some of the other programs doing little research projects or business proposals, seeing some of the ideas and products they come up with is actually very impressive. So, yes, I say watch out <laughs> because I absolutely think some of the, the, the young breed of new dietitians are coming through are actually going to be leaders in innovation. So thank you so much for joining us today, Liz. And um, You've been an innovator in your space of cancer and nutrition and um, older adults and nutrition. So thank you for leading the way. Uh, it's been a great conversation. And uh, also I'd like this to thank Flavor Creations for supporting today's podcast. And we look forward to having you join us on a future Dietitian Connection podcast. Wonderful. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's Dietitian Connection podcast. Also, a very big thank you to Professor Liz Eisenring for joining us. And thank you also to Flavor Creations for supporting today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's episode, please go to our show notes at dietitianconnection.com slash podcast. And we look forward to you joining us on a future Dietitian Connection podcast.